The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. If you're tired of getting contractors in to fix your leaky roof, only to find out that your roof still leaks, well, maybe it's time to sort that leak out for good. Rubber Roofs manufacture and apply the rubber paint to your roof. Your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber Roof offers a 10-year warranty. Rubber Roofs is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You can find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za. A very good afternoon to you. It is the 15th of May 2023. It's just past the midday mark. In a couple of minutes, I'll be joined by Brian Adams. The week that was, where do we actually begin? The Lady R ship that docked in Simon Sound, did it or did it not depart with arms and ammunition? What did it actually offload? Has it got anything to do with the 2024 election? What is happening in consideration of the fact that Russia, from a trading perspective, is minute in comparison to the United States of America and others. We are like the stepchild in the BRICS relationship. As much as I acknowledge the the fact that we need to be a part of a line such as BRICS that would help us in terms of our development and our trade, when one looks at the sheer enormity of the trade that comes out of places like China, Brazil, India, and then, of course, the, the role played by Russia, especially in respect of the current antagonistic stance they've taken in Eastern Europe and the invasion of Ukraine, one wonders what benefit do we give BRICS and what benefits does BRICS give us? On the other hand, the United States of America is our biggest effective trading partner. Again, does this come down to corruption? What does it come down to? Does it come down to a sense of loyalty because the Americans did not support the war on apartheid, whereas Russia trained up the liberation forces? I don't know. But 30 years we will be soon celebrating in respect of the liberation and the first democratic election that was held in South Africa. Do we owe a country that's become rogue a, a debt because of something that is more than 30 years old? I don't know. Are they supporting our current ruling party with funding going into the 2024 election? I don't know, but it's something that needs to be discussed. It's very, very worrisome. Closer to home for me in Johannesburg this week, Kenny Kunene was announced as the acting Johannesburg mayor. It beggars belief. Only in South Africa does politics ensure that it remains outrageous, it remains bizarre, and it remains somewhat entertaining, and it shouldn't be entertaining. You know, we make these jokes, we laugh about it, but why are we entertained by something that is impacting on each and every one of us as the residents of the city of Johannesburg? And this is something we've seen being played out across the country. What worries me the most is we've been talking about a coalition government going into 2024. We are currently in an election cycle. And we have been speaking about how good the potential of a coalition would be at a national level. But they're failing at local level. What is wrong with our coalitions? What is wrong with our political parties? It's something that, again, needs to be unpacked. And believe it or not, before you blink, we'll be lining up at the ballot box for the 2024 election, which 
the 30th anniversary of our liberation will be as important as that ballot was cast in 1994, if not more important when one looks at the state of our country. The state of our country is in a terrible, despicable state. And one thing I found very strange coming out of Andre de Reiter's book that was released yesterday is that he refers to himself somewhat whimsically but more in humor than anything as the Tony Soprano of South Africa, that he headed up inadvertently the largest crime organization in the country. It's not something to jest about. It's not something to laugh about. There's a failure in leadership in South Africa, and that is why we're chatting to Brian Adams today. We're going to be chatting about the failure of ethical leadership and what that has led to. I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of myself or Chai FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Today we're talking about ethical leadership, or rather the lack thereof, uh, when it comes to local, provincial, and national governments, and the impact it's having on South Africa as a whole. And it's not just something that we see in the public space, it's also something we see in the private space. My guest today, Brian Adams, was born in Cape Town and was schooled at Rondebosch Preparatory and High Schools. He has a Bachelor in Economics degree from the University of Stellenbosch, and is a graduate of the South African Army Command and Staff College. He has postgraduate qualification from the University of Stellenbosch as well as the University of Pretoria. He's a certified ethics officer, a pioneer member of the Ethics Practitioners Association, and one of the first group of 10 ethics practitioners to qualify for the professional designation EPSA. Brian was one of the pioneers of outsourced anonymous reporting services in South Africa in 2000 and is the author of the book Managing Outsourced Reporting Services Effectively. He's known as the ethics architect and is passionate about assisting clients to build ethical businesses and defeat the concerted attack of workplace crime. He achieves this through innovative reporting services called Be Heard and through his unique ethics surveys, consulting and training. He speaks regularly at conferences, workshops and webinars. And of course, today he's on our show. He's married to Jackie, has two adult daughters, three grandchildren, and calls Durban his home. And I think that's where I'm going to start the conversation. Um, a very good afternoon to you, Brian. Thank you for joining us today. Let's talk about Durban. Durban itself has suffered a critical issue when it comes to ethical leadership at local government level. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on in Durban and what you have seen as a resident in terms of the impact of this lack of ethical leadership. Yeah, thanks, Chad, and thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you, too, for all you're doing to uh, try and defeat unethical behavior and uh, workplace crime in South Africa. I mean, it's a, uh, everybody needs to be part of this, and uh, thank you for all you're doing. To get back to Durban, I think the, the place to start would be our, our previous mayor, who uh, uh, is now one of, I think, 10 or 11 people that are in court facing charges of fraud and corruption amounting to about half a billion rand. And uh, what is amazing about that is that I've got a photograph that I took a couple of years ago of the back of one of the Durban Corporation buses, and there's a very nice poster on the back of the bus saying that uh, we, you know, we believe in ethical behavior, etc., etc. And in the corner of this poster is a big uh, picture of the previous mayor. And that, to me, is an example of what I call the credibility gap 
where leadership, not only in Durban, but leadership around the world, but particularly talking about South Africa, they talk a hell of a good story. But when it actually comes to walking the, the talk, that's where the problem comes in. There's a huge disparity, a huge gap between what's being talked about. You know, you, you probably go into more boardrooms than, than I do these days and, and more receptions of big companies. And all of they've got their vision and mission. They've got all their, their values and everything on the board. You go to their websites. It's all beautifully set out. They've got PR consultants uh, beefing up their reputation and their brand and everything. But when it comes down to actually what's happening in, in, in practice in the business, that's where the problem comes in. And in Durban, I'm afraid to say I love this place. I've been living here uh, since 1989. And I can tell you now it's, it's a shambles. It's an absolute shambles. Um, the problem is basically that the, 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 the ANC has been in government here since right, since the beginning, apart from when the, uh, there was a, a period when the IFP were governing with, with the ANC. Um, and it has just gone downhill at a very, very rapid rate. And the, the problem is, and I get invited every year to speak during, um, Fraud Awareness Week, I get invited to the municipality to go and do talks. But I, I actually refused to go last year because I, I don't want to be associated with it because it's another example. For example, I'll give you a quick example. I know it's probably not what you want to talk about, but I'm trying to get um, my point across about the disparity, about the, the credibility gap. At this particular meeting, it was still virtual, and there were about 12 of us that were involved in some form or another, in-house people and guests that they had. And then afterwards, I said goodbye, and they said, no, 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 we have to go in for for a light lunch, and I went into this boardroom, and there were about 24 plates of food. And I said, who else is coming? Oh, no, no, she said, um, uh, what's not eaten here will be taken back to the office and the staff will, will share. And that, to me, was an indicator of a huge problem. It was an indicator of a lack of control. It was an indicator of a lack of consequences. And if you want me to sum up your question to me earlier about why do we have the problem in South Africa? It's because simply there are no consequences. I think that's very true. The issues of consequences and accountability is something that's seriously lacking in South Africa. And just before we go to break, I want to give this very simple analogy. I was asked recently by um, some colleagues in the industry, why are we seeing so many people that are coming out and committing fraud or acting in other deviant manners? And I said to them, when we were in school, there was a kid that we knew was bad in our class. That kid, if there was going to be something that was wrong, that kid would be somehow involved. And I'm not talking about being naughty. I'm talking about being bad. Somebody that was known to do bad things and that we knew would be a bad apple further in life. And that person would act out and, and act in a, in a bad manner. What we didn't realize is that there were four other people in our class that were the same as that person. But they never acted out on their impulses because they understood that there were consequences and that they would be held accountable. Now, when you look towards the top and you don't see that accountability, you don't see those consequences, it's become a free-for-all. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Brian about the lack of ethical leadership and what that causes on the ground. We'll be back straight after this. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. 
We're chatting today to the ethics architect himself, Brian Adams, and we're trying to make sense of what's happening in South Africa. We've seen the writing on the wall for a very long time, and it seems to me as if we are so bogged down, we are so in the midst of what could very well lead to a failed state that people are, are, are feeling helpless. They're feeling overwhelmed. There's a sense of depression. Brian, when I opened the show today, I chatted about a comment that um, Dorator made in his book that he felt like the Tony Soprano of South Africa and that he was inadvertently the head of the, the largest organized crime syndicate. I, don't, I personally don't like that analogy. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, I don't think it's appropriate at all because uh, uh, maybe it turned out that way, but it certainly, to my mind, it should have been something that, that wasn't even touched on. I, if I may, uh, Chad, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned just before we went to the break, and that was about that kid in the class. And uh, you, you're obviously very well aware of what we call the 10-80-10 rule. Um, which is used in forensics and in ethics. And that basically simply is that in any organization, you have a very small percentage of people, maybe 10%, maybe less, who are always good. And no matter what happens, they will always, if, if, some, if they pick up a cell phone, they're going to hand it in. On the other end, you have the 10% or a bigger amount or smaller amount who are always going to be bad. They're the ones that are looking for loopholes, looking for shortcuts, doing whatever they can, whenever they can, and however they can to steal. And in the middle, you've got this 80%, which we call the corruptible middle, which can either go towards the good guy side or the bad guy side. And the problem with South Africa, to my mind, is that the, the, the model says that if leadership sets an example, the, the 80% or the, the middle group, the corruptible middle, moves to the good guy side. If leaders are setting an example, if the environment is such that there are consequences for bad behavior, it will move to the right, to the, to the good guy side. And the problem I find with South Africa is that we've had a total climate of impunity for so long that even good guys who are, who are probably in the middle somewhere, who are, are actually probably inherently good, who would always do the good thing are now seeing, hang on, everybody else is getting away with stuff. Why shouldn't I also have a, have a dip? Why shouldn't I also try my luck? And that's to me, is the biggest problem that you've seen over the last 25 or so years. You've seen a climate being eroded completely by this climate of impunity that's, that's, uh, that's overtaken the situation in South Africa, where more and more good guys have become bad guys because they've just seen that there's absolutely no consequences if they do that kind of stuff. That makes a lot of sense. Um, for me, it's not just some of those in that 80% that now become bad or think, well, if you can't beat them, you may as well join them. It's also those in the 80% that don't say anything. Um, they become complicit. But then, of course, you have a catch-22 scenario where some people do say something and they become victimized and in some extreme cases even killed for talking about corruption that we see. In respect of Dorator's comments, I don't like it simply because – a show like The Sopranos glamorized the mafia. It glamorized organized crime. We should never, ever glamorize something that is so inherently bad, that has impacted so definitively on our country that the disparity between the haves and haves-nots is the widest disparity in the world. We've got so much of our population living in abject poverty simply because of lack of service delivery as a direct result of corruption. 
But going back to my previous point, let's talk about whistleblowers. Whistleblowers have a bad deal in South Africa. We have an act, the Protected Disclosures Act, but that's only protecting somebody if they're in the employ of an organization they're blowing the whistle on. What do we do to make whistleblowers more confident, and how do we protect whistleblowers? Yeah, well, before I answer that, as you know, that's one of my fields of specialization. I just want to pick up on another point you made. I'm, if you don't mind, uh, Chad, you touched on a very, very important point as far as I'm concerned. Is that is that some people are they follow the the ostrich approach. They bury their heads in the sand, and unfortunately, I'm going to point my finger today at a lot of leaders in the private sector. We've had a lot of we've had a couple of instances you may recall over the last couple of years when some of the guys in the private sector I won't mention any names but like two immediately come to the top of my mind and they both people that were the top the top of banks big banks they both stood up and stood out and spoke up about stuff that was going on within a couple of days they were whacked so badly by the government in terms of threatening to have all the their accounts with those banks closed threatening all kinds of other sanctions against the bank, that the boards of those banks chickened out and basically told those executives to zip it, otherwise they would follow the consequences. And the problem that I have, and I think history is going to be very unkind to those top executives, is that there are thousands of top executives in the private sector that are just doing absolutely nothing, that that are doing nothing to the point that you made, that they can be considered to become complicit. And that, that is the background in which whistleblowing uh, establishes itself. And that's why when I talk to some clients, I, I sometimes get the picture in my mind of an ethical desert. You can't establish a whistleblowing culture in an ethical desert. Because who, why would there be if, like in a big organization, like, for example, the Etipini municipality, when the mayor is herself a crook, why would there be any culture in the organization which would, uh, popularize or incentivize or encourage uh, a culture of whistleblowing. So the problem is, and there's a, you know, the, the, the Protective Disclosures Act of ours has been around for a long time and it, there were a couple of amendments made, but it still doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough to actually protect the people. There needs to be proper protection in terms of, of safe houses and, and proper witness protection programs for these people. You know, somebody reminded me the other day of a, of a slide that they sent me of a guy pointing a gun at another chap at his system. He laughs at him in the system. You can't point a gun at me. This is a gun-free zone. And it's exactly the same with a whistleblower. We all wave the Protected Disclosures Act to people and say, well, we're protected by the act. But in fact, the protection is only historical. It's not real-time protection because you saw that Mrs. Deokaran from the uh, Gauteng uh, legislature she could have waived the Protective Disclosures Act uh, uh, ad nauseum, and it wouldn't have protected her from being hit by those gangsters that shot her outside her home. So we've got to get real about this. We, you know, we can't keep on kidding ourselves that we've got a great constitution, that we've got all the right acts in place, that we've got all the right uh, structures in place, but we're not doing what we should be doing. The leaders are not setting an example. The leaders are not leading uh, by engaging. They're sitting in their little ivory towers, making their odd statement every now and then, but they're not engaging with the situation. That's the frustration that I have. I'm so glad you brought up the fact that we have incredible legislation and all these wonderfully um, named units, you know, the Hawks, uh, mm-hmm. the investigating directorate. 
one thing I realize is you can have all the legislation in the world. You can have all the units well-named in the world. But if you don't have the political willpower, nothing's going to happen. And talking about these units in the legislation, yes, we do have incredible legislation. Yes, we do have members within these units that want to work. I realized why the, the, the legislation is not working and why these units are not working. There's a stranglehold on their budgets. If you look at the budgets of the Hawks, the Hawks budget is almost half that of the VIP protection budget. That is unbelievable. The Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation in a country beset with crime gets almost half of what the unit gets that protects dignitaries. How are we expected to see a difference if there isn't sufficient budget to employ enough people with the tools to do their job? Yeah, well, Zafira uh, did a beautiful cartoon uh, around the time of Mrs. Diakron's death. Uh, and it was, it was two blocks. And the one block was all the, the politicians being protected with all their black, blue light brigades. And poor old Mrs. Diakron uh, on her own, parking outside her house, being, being shot by a bunch of gangsters. And that, that picture will stay with me forever because it's, it absolutely underlines what you just said, Chad. We've got our priorities all wrong. I mean, how can the protection of politicians be more important than actually uh, making an effort to defeat workplace crime and, and, and corruption? I mean, it's crazy, absolutely crazy. The investigating directorate, which was meant to be an incredibly well-functioning independent unit, falling part of the National Prosecuting Authority, responsible for investigating what came out of Zondo, still has not been made a permanent standalone agency and still has insufficient budget to employ people. Their first year um, of inception, they had 100 million rand, and now I think their budget's around 350 million rand. This is a unit where you could see return on investment if they were capacitated because they're there to go after the stolen money and to claw it back. Again, it comes down to the willpower. How do you believe the powers that be will be in some way, apart from the polls, in some way coerced into understanding that their willpower is necessary for there to be changed, or do you believe we've hit the point where it's it's so ingrained, this corrupt nature of the way government does business, that they don't want to see capacity within these investigating agencies? Yeah, I think you're spot on. I mean, why, if you're a crook, why would you uh, fund an organization which is going to catch you? I mean, yesterday or the day before, we had the breaking news of the of the Premier of the Eastern Cape that's just been caught out for having lied about his uh, his master's degree and about his PhD, which are apparently all a, a lot of smoke and mirrors. Now, that is a Premier of one of our provinces that is a crook, that's dishonest, that's unethical. Now, how can you expect him and the Eastern Cape to do anything ethical if the person at the top is fundamentally dishonest. I mean, we are at the stage now where I think we've passed a tipping point and it's going to take uh, a, a massive amount of, of of resources to get us back on an even keel. I'm just thinking while I was answering you uh, about the case of um, uh, of Gulliver's Travels. You, you know the story of Gulliver's Travels? That uh, Gulliver goes to this place and he wakes up and he's surrounded by these little Lilliputians and they've, they've tied him down and he's like 60 times the size of each one of them, but they, 
They've managed to tie every, every arm and leg and neck and everything down, and he's completely incapable of moving. And I use that that slide that I've got when I do my ethics talks because the problem with most of our leaders, especially in the private uh, in the public sector, is that they compromise. They like Gulliver. They they tied down because of their own impropriety and uh, malfeasance and things in such a way that they can't move. They can't do their jobs. I mean, how can you imagine now the Premier of the Eastern Cape? How can you imagine that he's going to do anything about catching other crooks when they all point at him and say, but what about you? And that's the problem we have, Chad, is that we have no people that are setting an example. Most of the people that we have leading us in the – let's talk about the, the public sector for the moment. Most of the people that are leading us in the public sector have got, have got skeletons in the cupboard. I mean, if, if you look at virtually every single leader at every level, I mean, I'm just the one that comes to mind is, uh, is the, the new secretary general of the, of the, uh, of the ANC. I mean, if you look every single place that he's worked, he, there's a skeleton in the cupboard. Remember there was Shedders, uh, the furniture people. They, they supplied the, when he was minister of support, of sport. They provided the uniforms for um, our Olympic team. And there was a huge scandal about that because they subsequently paid him and his family to spend a week in Dubai, uh, paid for kindly by by the, the the providers of the uniform. Every single one of them has got some kind of checkered history. And uh, that's why nobody's doing anything about it because they're all involved. They're all busy pointing fingers at each other. It's interesting. That's that the tragedy. It is. And it's interesting that you spoke about Oscar, the leader of... And the Eastern Cape. When one looks at the, the Heath Special Investigating Unit, it was created by Mandela to investigate in the mid to late 90s corruption in the Eastern Cape. And it then was expanded to become the, the Special Investigating Unit to investigate by presidential proclamation corruption on a countrywide basis. In 2001, two years after Mandela had stepped down, um, Judge Heath stepped down from that post and he said the reason he was stepping down was because the government he was serving was soft on corruption. They wouldn't allow him to mm. investigate the arms deal, which had been signed off in December of 1999. And that's the date that I go back to when I talk about corruption in South Africa, because that was the defining point. It was the biggest deal in a democratic South Africa, and it was a corrupt deal. And Heath himself said, because he wasn't allowed to investigate it, he was leaving based on the fact that this government is soft on corruption. It it makes one feel very disenchanted. For you as an ethics practitioner, somebody that lives and breathes ethics and teaches it and communicates the importance of it, how do we get out of this rut? Yeah, look, um, I have a, a I have an image in my mind of the of the carriages going to the. Um, to the guillotines in France. Uh, you know, one part of my brain says the only way we're going to achieve this is by a massive uh, effort to overthrow this whole structure that's become completely poisoned. That's not obviously not politically correct. Um, but we, there has to be something dramatic here. We have to get a new leader on board nationally, uh, and he's going to have to do what the guy in Singapore did all those years ago and what other leaders have done subsequently, which is perhaps... Uh, not also not a democratic thing to do, but we need almost like a benign dictatorship of some kind that's going to step in and say, right, guys, this is how we're going to do things for the next 10 years. Uh, we're not going to have elections. We're going to run it. On, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking off the top of my head here, so please, if it upsets some of your some of your listeners, I'm sorry about that. 
But I don't believe we can save it by just going through the motions over and over again, doing the same thing. What did Einstein say? Doing the same thing over and over again, ex- expecting different results is the is an indication of lunacy. Well, that's exactly how I feel. We we go through the motions every day in this country, and the good guys, like the good guys here, like my neighbour, uh, tarring the road where there was a huge pothole out of his own pocket. Him and he, he's in the construction business. We got some guys to do it, and the things like that. I I helped clean up one of my parks around me the other day. They're good people doing good stuff all over the place, but I'm afraid to say. Uh, it's like um, that beautiful photograph when that tanker got stuck in sewers with that one guy with his little JCB still trying to see if he could nudge the tanker. Uh, there are a lot of people that are trying to nudge the tanker, but we're going to need a hell of a lot more than that to change the way things are being done. Yes, people say, start with the young people. Start with where you can, with what you can. Remember the old starfish story, make a change here, do that, there, do that. But I'm afraid we that has to happen. Absolutely, that has to happen. But I'm afraid we need we need a dramatic uh, we need a dramatic change. We need a dramatic uh, impact that has to be put into this thing before we're going to achieve any kind of success. I tend to agree with you, Brian. Um, we, we 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 seeing change. It can only take place from a generational perspective unless there's a cataclysmic moment in our history, something that changes the way we see things. Um, Mandela was a catalyst for change But he was only in office until 99 And since then things have deteriorated We've lost that unity We've lost what Tutu called um, the Rainbow Nation And it's easy for us to wax lyrical um, But we're not in the peripheries You and I are actually in the trenches We're seeing it on a day-to-day basis But for that change to take place You're 100% right A catalyst has to occur And what that catalyst is I don't know, but I hope to find it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to spend the last 10 minutes chatting to Brian what organizations should be doing by starting within their organizations to lead and inspire by the way in which they conduct themselves. We'll be back after this. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. We're chatting today to Brian Adams about the problem of ethical leadership or the lack thereof in South Africa and the impact that it's had on our country. Now, one thing's for sure, we've discussed the problems um, and we could go on for hours discussing the problems, but there have to be some solutions. And those solutions don't have to be huge. Now, what people need to understand is that government is the single biggest client to the private sector in the country, which means that when you see corruption, it's a symbiotic relationship between the public and the private sector criminal to plunder the public purse. So there is something that can be done, and that starts with the companies that are engaged with business, and that means running an ethical business. Brian, if you had to summarize for us what an ethical business is about, what is it? Well, Chad, um, I'm not sure if you know, but I developed a methodology called Brian's Ethics Pizza. And it basically sets out eight critical success factors that any successful and ethical business, successful means sustainable, profitable, sustainable. Your, my friend Cynthia was on your show a couple of months ago, and she spoke about the re- return on integrity, the new ROI. And organizations have got to realize that it's good, it's a good commercial uh, imperative to run an ethical business because it's going to become more profitable. 
But then the market, the people out there have got to understand what ethics is. I mean, I had an instance a couple of weeks ago on one of the groups that I was talking to. And the one young lady got up and she said, uh, is it ethical for me to have to sleep with my supervisor to get onto the overtime list? And a couple of people chuckled in the group. And I, 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 I was horrified, not about the, her question. Because, I mean, I think that's quite widespread. I mean, what I hear from what's going on around it is quite widespread. But the, the, the question, the thing that horrified me was the fact that she didn't know what was right and wrong. And that's one of the biggest problems we have, Chad, is that we have this complete lack of understanding about what's right and wrong. And we can discuss the reasons for that and the family unit and all those kind of things that, that people are not being brought up the way they were 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago. The problem is, and the way we, the way we need to start is we need to start with ourselves. Every organization needs to decide. And if you go back to King, the fourth report of the King Commission or King Committee, 1.1 is organizations have the, the top management or the, the governing body has got to lead ethically and effectively. That's it. There's no two ways about it. You either lead ethically and effectively or you shouldn't be in business. That's the, really the most important thing. And then secondly, uh, John, John Steam, um, Maxwell, uh, he wrote, uh, he's written millions of books as you probably know, but one of the things that he's famous for is saying that, that leaders have got to know the way, they've got to go the way, and they've got to show the way. And that's what we need. We need leaders who are clued up. We need leaders who have set out their mission, have set out their objectives, have set out the direction they're going to go. They've got to take the team with them. They've got to set an example. They've got to set an example by engagement. Like the lioness, you know, my favorite animal. Uh, she doesn't sit in a corner office in Santon over the Phoenix golf course. She's right on the back of the buffalo involved in the killing process. And then the, the go the way, show the way, and I'm sorry, know the way, go the way and show the way. Top management and leaders at every level have got to start setting an example. And the problem, as I said earlier, is we don't have those role models anymore. Who do people look up to? Just think about your own life. Who do you look up to in your, in your business life, in your social life, in your, in your uh, faith journey? Who do you look up to? I mean, there are not a lot of real cool role models. I mean, we've had lots of them and they've all let us down. I mean, just, just think of, of, of Lance Armstrong. Think of Sharapova. Think of, think of, of, of Daryl Oscar. There are so many people that, that our kids and others have looked up to and they've turned out to have feet of clay. And so we really are in a dreadful situation. But to answer your question, the typical African way of going around and around is we need to start with ourselves. Each and every one of us, you and me and everybody that's listening, needs to decide so far, no further. I'm not going to get involved in corruption. I'm not going to get involved in bribery. I'm only going to deal with people that, that are honest and ethical. I'm only going to buy from them. And I'm only going to sell to them. And once we start that, we can start turning this ship around. It's going to take a hang of a lot of effort. But unless you and I draw a line in the sand and say, so far, no further, we, nothing's going to happen to Absolutely nothing's going to happen. And then it's like the story of the bees. You know, one bee can sting you and you get a bit of a, bit of a zinger. But if, if a, if a whole lot of bees, uh, attack you, then they, they've got massive power. And what we've got to do is bees, like bees, you and I and others and like-minded people, 
have got to start standing together and saying, so far, no further. We're not going to allow this to happen. But we don't. We just park off. We have our prize and we, uh, you know, drink our cold drinks and we think, oh, well, tomorrow things are going to change. They're not going to change. Unless you and I and other leaders at every level in our society are going to get stuck in, we're heading for a train smash. In closing, um, and I, I, I always mention this because you ask about role models and somebody who's been a staff officer within the military is a role model to me because I understand what people have to go through to reach that um, pinnacle within the Defence Force and you were a full colonel. There was a lot of pride, and we still see in, in, in movements around the world, there's pride in a flag, there's pride in a country. F- taking from your learning um, within the Defence Force, do you think that there's something that can be taken from that, given to the public per se, that if we have the sense of pride in our flag, pride in our nation, that that could perhaps go some way in changing this corrupt perception? Yeah, well, look, one of the eight critical sex factors that I have is shared values. And the problem is, you know, the uh, Heritage Day, you remember the only shared value that we could find for Heritage Day was Brian. Remember, Desmond Tutu suggested that that was a common denominator, that everybody across the spectrum in South Africa likes Brian. But what are our other shared values in this country? That's what we've got to find. And we need to find unifying people like Mandela, like Tutu and others that they are out there. There's people like Zondo. They're, they're good guys out there that could unify us. And I'm sure there's stacks of guys in the private sector. Those that haven't sold their souls already. That guys that are prepared to stand up like the Rater and say, that's it. I'm not going to allow this to happen anymore under, in my name. I'm going to stand. So we need to find those national symbols uh, and national uh, values that we can stand up and say, we all gather around. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow. We are such a, uh, a diverse and uh, divided society that I don't know how we can do it. But, I mean, even the, the opposition politicians can't get together. You started out to chat about Johannesburg. I mean, we, we are hiding to nothing, Chad. Unless we can get a group of people to at least stand up and say, here's the flag or whatever it is. This is the direction we're going. This is the, what we believe in. These are our leaders. These are the guys that are setting an example. These are the guys that have got no skeletons in their cupboard. And unless we can get that movement, well, I'm sorry, I can't see, I can't see this being a future, this country having a future for my grandkids and, uh, and my kids. Brian, you've ended the show on a, on a very important note, and that's the fact that we need to find unifying factors. We need to find people that we can all aspire to be more like. And we've lost mm. the likes of Tutu. We've lost the likes of Mandela. But like you said, there are still people out there, and we need to find them. Going back to the ethical aspect of things, because it's such a fascinating conversation, I want to continue it again in the very near future. But in the meantime... How do our guests and our listeners find out more about you being the ethics architect and your incredible pizza analogy? Now they can just go to my website, www.theethicsarchitect.com. And the reason why it's an architect is because I help organizations build ethical structures. So I'm, I'm not a builder. I'm an architect. I help them draw up the plans for their dream organization, and we help them put that in place. So it's www.theethicsarchitect.com. Thanks, Chad. 
Brian, thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to our next conversation. And for those that are interested, um, Brian does hold workshops that discuss everything um, ethics related. And that is one of the critical issues missing in our country right now, ethics. So go find out more at The Ethics Architect. Brian Adams, thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, the podcast will be uploaded a little bit later to our website, www.chaifm.com. That's C-H-A-I-F-M.com. And, of course, I'll be sharing it to the Confidential Brief radio show Facebook page. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'll be back same time, same place next week. And remember, stay safe out there.